So if you're buying goods for five bucks, you want to wholesale it for 10 and they will put it out for 20. And in order to get to that five, you need to figure out whatever it is it takes to get it there. And if it doesn't work, then you don't have, you likely won't have a successful item. Do you want to learn how to make money as an artist without selling out? Hey, I'm Erin Sparler, and each week, my guests and I share the secrets for turning your art into income. If you're ready to start making money with your art, visit theartistappeals.com forward slash go. Hey, Matt, how's it going? It's going really well, Erin. How are you today? Good. Welcome to the Artist Appeals. And you are over there at Design Edge, Nespa. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I love the wall of toys behind you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's sort of some of its greatest hits, some of its things I just like, and, and a bunch of little knickknacks here and there. Yeah. Speaking of greatest hits, we always start with these uh, rapid fire questions, but I made some new ones for you. What is the number one top selling toy you've helped develop? So that's number one. Sure, that would be Tickle Me Elmo. No way. You made Tickle Me Elmo? We worked on Tickle Me Elmo, yes. <laughs> now I'm disgusted. <laughs> I don't know whether to be like, I mean, that thing was horrid as a parent, but <laughs> as an entrepreneur, yeah. I'm impressed. Yeah, we worked on quite a few big hits. But in that era, there was a lot of like huge hits because it was like TV still had like, it was still television before the internet. So companies would put a lot of money behind one item and that item would just blow up and be a fad. I mean, so things like Tickle Me Elmo, we did Pogs. That was also gigantic, you know. Oh, uh, I remember ago. Pogs. Yeah. The yeah that Pogs went and was, jumped. Yeah, Pogs was a nightmare for me for like like a, like a summer because it was hand-cutting prototypes all the time and they're chipboard with and I was using an exacto knife and I'm I don't know how old I am 19 or something I, and I would come home with like you know it looked like I had arthritis knuckles like all just like, all wound up cutting chipboard with an exacto knife you know all day long every day but, oh my gosh I remember those flashback so what is the number one thing you love to do in your business then um help entrepreneurs become toy companies i mean that's really become a big focus for me lately um it's like i've made all those inroads and i and i have all the resources and if i can get everyone's ducks in a row you know there's a clear path to success which is is something i'm i'm proud that i've been able to to find a, a path to do that that's really cool so what's the one thing you hate doing in your business <laughs> uh sitting with my accountant <laughs> You know, I hear that over and over again. The bookkeeping is like killer for everybody. Oh, man, I, I commiserate. So number three, what is the funniest or weirdest thing that has ever happened to you in designing a toy or in the toy business? I mean, there's been so many like weird things. I mean, I've been yelled at by celebrities. <laughs> That's for no, this has always been a little surreal. You know, Who's like, the biggest celebrity that ever yelled at you? And what they yell at you about? <laughs> oh, I, I don't even know if I could say it. I'd probably get like a cease and desist or, or a lawsuit from. But uh, I had one celebrity who, without saying any names, we were working with another toy company to develop a line of like children's like play sets and dress up stuff with her. And um, she was really huge at the time. 
And the company couldn't get along with her because she was just butting heads and making outrageous demands all the time. Mm-hmm. But then when we were in meetings, she always sort of leaned on me because, and then she, so they're like, all right, Matt, can you just deal with her direct? And I was like, sure, no problem. You know, it doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. And we worked well together for about two weeks. And then one day she like loved the layout that we did and like totally was like, this is fantastic. Thank you so much. Oh, I love you guys. You're the best. You know, next time you're in LA, you come to my house. Da, da, da. It's like, all right, all right, cool, cool. And then she called me back five minutes later, like a completely different person and told me, you can't do that. You can't go inside of people's heads and steal their thoughts. And I was like, whoa, Whoa. she's not stable or she's on something. Yeah. She was like, how did you know I liked red? Like you must've gone in my head. And I was just, and I, I giggled and I was like, I don't know. Like, what are you talking about? And then she just like lost her mind and started screaming and then crying. And then her assistant got on the phone and then long story short, I was like, I can't deal with this. And like, I don't know. They kept yelling at me. And then I was like, you know what? Go fuck yourself. Like, I'm not doing this. And, I the phone. and then I called the company. I'm like, I'm not doing that. And they were like, okay. And I thought I was going to get fired from the company. Instead, they're like, they couldn't deal with her either. So, oh, sounds like she was having some delusions. If she yeah. thinks you're in her head because you know that she likes red. I mean, red's a popular <laughs> color for marketing. Yes, yes. That was I remember that so, so clearly. I'm like, what? I'm and I said it like that, that. Like, and as soon as I said it with like a bit of a chuckle, she lost her, she just lost it like completely. Like I was thought I was mocking her and it was it was bad. Oh, poor thing. Okay, so what is the one most important piece of business advice you'd give your younger self if you were starting out again today? <sighs> I mean, just stay the course, you know, and then and, and be be serious about having fun. Be serious about having fun. I'm going to quote you on that. I mean, you are in the toy industry, so is that a bad pun, an oxymoron, or is it just for real? <laughs> it's for real. I mean, that's that's the deal, right? You know, especially have fun, you know, it's a a good, it's a good, good, good gig to have if you can have it. Right, right. All right. We're going to talk in terms of, you know, I normally use the acronym appeals, art, product, presentation, educate, amplify, licensing and contract terms and success. But I've modified these specially for you today. So. What is the first step in developing a toy? Like for those people watching or listening, what is the very first thing if you want to get into toy design or invent a toy or something like that? What is the very first thing you should do? Well, toy design and toy inventing are different animals. So that's that wouldn't be the same answer for both. Okay. If it's toy inventing, I mean, after obviously the idea, right? Because that would be the first you know, technical step, research, see what's okay. up. So sketches are the idea and then research and making sure of whether it's viable. Yeah. I mean, I would look, I would research even before I did the sketch. I mean, if when I'm lying in bed at night and something comes across my mind, I'm like, yeah, that's going to make me a million bucks. Then I'll just go search the internet. I'm like, nope, it's not going to make me a million bucks. 20 other people <laughs> did it. Okay. So <laughs> research even before kind of, Invention and sketching and, and yeah, concepting. Think about what your idea is and try to figure out how many keywords can possibly mix and match to to see if anyone else is out there. You know. Okay. Cool. Cool. Um, how do you keep yourself young and in a playful mood for evaluating toys? Like, how do you evaluate these ideas? I don't know how I keep myself. The, <laughs> I mean, that's. Um, and if I gave that advice, there'd be doctors calling saying, like, don't do that. 
<laughs> I am not a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a doctor. Um, they did spend the night in a hotel. <laughs> what was that ad campaign? Yes. That was a weird yeah. one. It's <laughs> really weird. I don't know. It's just a I wish I had a clear answer for that. It's really it's 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 a cumulative thing that's built up over time. Like just you've 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 seen enough, you've learned enough, you've heard enough, you've seen enough mistakes, you've seen enough successes, you get a sense of what the market can bear. You get a sense of what the public wants, but you also have an idea of, you know, how it can be produced and how if it can be produced for, you know, the right amount of dollars. I mean, the the, the trick is to wear so many hats. Like you have to look at something and immediately think of it as a designer, think of it as an engineer, think of it from a marketing perspective and think of it from a retail. And of course, most importantly, think of it as a consumer. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I guess that plays off of that. How do you know if a toy is going to be popular? Ah, you don't. Every year they make the summer blockbuster movie that bombs, right? It's you, yeah. know, you, you can put a lot of money into something and a lot of effort and hire all the right people and it can still tank. You just, it's, you know, it's an, it's not to dilute it, but it is a bit of a numbers game to some, some respect. Yes. Can that be, can that be, you know, worked into your, into your favor or, or, can you mitigate as much as possible to protect yourself? Yeah, but with all numbers games, not, you know it's 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 a bit of it's a bit of gambling. It's like you know playing the stock market. Are you buying conservative stocks or are you are you going for the risky ones? You know, it depends on your personality. Okay, okay, cool, good answer. Um, so where do you find inspiration then? What's a where are you finding inspiration right now? What do you find? Inspirational. Oh, I find inspiration everywhere. I'm like my friends won't go to the supermarket with me because I'll like stay there for two hours, like walking around, just get super excited. Like, you see what Jello did with Crane? It's amazing. Like, you know, that's. <laughs> <laughs> did you see? <laughs> oh my gosh! So just look around you and be inspired, yeah, I mean, especially huh? in toys. I mean, essentially, toys are miniature versions or or, or dumbed down versions or, or or hollowed out versions of everyday things. You know, oh, like, everyone yeah. always jokes, like, oh, give a kid a refrigerator and a box and he'll play with it. Yeah, of course he will. Then I'll also play with a miniature car and he'll play with them. She'll play with them and he'll play with a miniature stove and, you know, and, and anything's fun if done right. Hmm. Good idea. Okay. Okay. Let's talk product for just a minute. How do you price a toy? How do you price a toy? Correctly. <laughs> smart ass how do you price a toy um you you have to you have to know the the, re, the market and the retail and you work on something referred to as for a model you would use keystone which is pretty much a four-time markup so if you're buying goods for five bucks you want to wholesale it for 10 and they will put it out for 20 mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, and you, go ahead in order to get to that five, you need to figure out whatever it is it takes to get it there. And if it doesn't work, then you don't have you likely won't have a successful item. And oftentimes, you know, it's not as simple as just, you know, making a cheaper version or a more expensive version. You really have to put thought into it. And a lot of startups sometimes get very married to their original concept, which is more often than not overbuilt. And when you want to remove things, they go into panic mode because that's the only way they've ever known it. And right. sometimes the dumbed down version is the better version. You know, 
Uh, if you think about all those great songs that you've heard over the, your lifetime, and then, you know, like in the 90s, MTV would do Unplugged, and the Unplugged versions sometimes are better than the real versions. So don't be scared to simplify. I loved Unplugged. Yeah. Are you a visual person? Would you like to see what we're talking about? I imagine you probably are if you're an artist. Well, for a limited time, you can get everything you need all in one place so you can focus on doing what you love, creating. Order The Artist Appeals How to Make Money as an Artist in Seven Steps as an ebook. That's right, we've taken all of the best tips, tricks, stories, lessons, as well as pictures from our guests and put them in a book. Now you can get the ebook instantly. You can open it and read it on your desktop, on your tablet, on your phone. It contains over 200 full color pictures and examples. And as part of this super sweet deal, you get three free bonuses. You're gonna get not just the Artist Appeals book, but also the Artist Appeals one-page planner that brings it all together in one place. The Artist Appeals workbook, which has over 80 pages of checklists and worksheets. Just print it out, fill it out, and away you go. You have a business plan. And you'll also get the Artist Appeals online course, which contains over 55 more lessons and is being added to daily. So you get all this for 90% off or at the price of just the book. If you want to get the Artist Appeals, How to Make Money as an Artist in Seven, seven Steps, ebook check out how to make money as an artist.com so you know i've heard of looking at other products where they on the market and you know picking a price point similar to that but i've also heard of and then working backwards from that but i've also heard some people say that you know you have to kind of start with your bom which you mentioned p the other day the bill of materials, yes, materials. and work upwards they're in they're in, they go side by side that that's i wouldn't know if i mean yeah yes you build your bill of materials to get a sense of where your costing actually is but you have to work across reductions to to the to what's out there, to what the retail is supposed to be. And that's what I'm saying. Sometimes you have to dumb things down. The boards, you know, the box might be a thinner gauge or you might, you know, rotocast something opposed to injection molded or, you know, maybe you don't need a vacuum form tray in your game box. You know, it's it's all those little things. Maybe the scale is just too off. You know, sometimes, well, actually oftentimes, you're really just dealing with plastic by the pound. You know, mm. so you really just the wall section of your toy might be too thick. You know, you might have hired somebody who, you know, renders something really well in CAD, but doesn't understand the engineering or the internal parts of any piece of plastic. And they just spec everything to a certain part. And you hand that to a factory and they look at it and they go, OK, that's what they want. They ne they'll never come to you and tell you that you should thin, thin it out, you know, and at least not initially, because that's all margin for them. That's fascinating. So just to recap, it sounds to me like you're saying you've got to work both from what the market currently has and work backwards and downwards. And you've got to work from the bottom up, seeing what your prices are. And then I love the straight up tips you just gave us on actually decreasing cost by decreasing thickness of cardboard or decreasing the thickness of plastic. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's You have to add and subtract all at the same time. 
<laughs> so it's a calculus equation. Yes, yes, yes. It's new math. Right? It's-, <laughs> it's new math. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Okay. So um, how do you really balance those two, I guess, is the, the, the question that you, you know, almost have to answer is how well, do you balance those two things? It's just problem solving. It. It's just something you just get better at over time. I think, you know, costing your first couple of things, most, most people, a lot of startups, I find, you know, read a book or listen to one podcast or, or, or whatever it is. And they, you know, they've gotten some good advice, but they don't have the practice, but they think they figured it out. It's, it's like they read a magazine on how to play piano and now they think they can do a concerto and like, you know, it's like, you know, it, it's going to take some time and you're going to have to learn the tricks and the nuances. And uh, there's always more to learn, you know, and every factory is different. So, you know, you might have think you figured it out. Now you're trying another factory, you're trying di- different angles. And they're like, no, you know, because their strength might be something different, you know, and mm-hmm. especially if you don't know processes, but you think you understand manufacturing. If your factory's primary business is injection molding, but you're handing them something that needs to be, you know, uh, die cast, you know, don't expect them to have amazing pricing on it. You know, not every factory does everything. That's the one thing that I am shocked by the amount of people who think that, the one factory is doing everything. It's not, they have to, they have to outsource the tooling or, or the die making or the pack, the printing or certain components. Maybe they don't injection mold, but they rotocast. So they have to get the, the injection mold parts from someplace else. And it's, it's all packed out at the end of the day. No one's truly making everything under one roof, unless there's some mega factory. Mm-hmm. Uh, in which case, if you're a startup, if you're using a mega factory, you're paying too much. Right. So look at a lot of different manufacturers and get different quotes and make sure that your factory is specialized. Yeah. Or find a solid agent that's got rep, that's got a, that has these relationships across the board. Cause it's, you know, it's every time you, when you're just going into, into these things, you're, the odds that you're going to know enough people to, to, to get all these, these ducks in a row is, 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 is pretty slim. And, you know, whether it's domestic or it's, overseas manufacturing there's so much to it right there there really is that's why massive toy companies have entire departments to do this well i think we need to back up to the word agent right there because i think that's one of the secrets of the toy industry i hadn't realized is that there's agents that work between inventors and new startups um, to help you with this type of stuff so can you talk a little bit about how somebody finds an agent, what is that agent called? You know, is it a toy agent? Is it what how's that work? Well, in the sense that we're talking about right now, that there's manufacturing agents. Okay. Um, I mean, they're throughout the world, you know, in the toy industry, a lot of them are based in Hong Kong. Oh. Which is why I lived in Hong Kong for for a while when I because we have offices in, in China and I opened my first office in uh in in Hong Kong in two thousand four. I but didn't I know that. Do you speak Mandarin or, or no. what? They, 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 no. they would, well, first they would speak Cantonese. And, My and, bad. Oof. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. you can't offend people. <laughs> um, I, the Cantonese, I found very, it's very difficult. It's a, it's pretty much a song language and you can say the same word five different ways and it's all about intonation uh, and they would oh. mean five different things. Oh, yeah, I different. would screw that up. <laughs> yeah, well, and also Hong Kong was a British colony, so everyone speaks English. Oh, fantastic. Okay. So uh, where were we? So, but oh, I, I, Agents, I, we're talking about yeah. how does somebody go about finding a toy manufacturing agent 
to help them get costing for their idea or invention? Yeah, well, you know, obviously networking, uh, different different groups and societies, you know, obviously the Toy Association is a great resource. People of Play is a great resource. Also, if you're an inventor and starting off, you can always reach out to the United Inventors Association. Uh, if you're in Europe, there's IFIA. There, there are connections to these sorts of things. Um, but, you know, it's not like a lot of these people like heavily advertise. This isn't the sort of thing that, you know, Joe Blow consumer just, you know, opens the old school phone book and, and goes down A and finds AAA agent and uses the first one on the list. I can't uh, Google it. <laughs> you can, you know, but there's also the problem with that is it's, I find that the good ones are hard to find because mm-hmm. there are a lot of scammer organizations out there that will get you on, that will onboard you and just like run you through the ringer and charge you for anything and every little thing. You know, as Design Edge as an agent, our, we work with companies not just to manufacture for them. We also get them to retail. You know, my business model is their success is how we grow um, because I have the connections. I, I know the sales reps. I know the, the 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 buyers. You know, we work with the retailers. And if I can get the product in the right hands, you know, making instead of making 5,000 pieces once and then saying, oh, I'm so sorry, these are stuck in your garage, I can be excited when they get placement into, into major retails and hopefully grow and, and become a sizable company. And even we have the ability even to then, you know, when companies become of a certain size, we can get them funding. You know, we can get purchase orders financed. We can we can get interest from larger companies to give them additional seed money and or even purchase them. That's fantastic. And it leads us right into this idea of presentation. So we're talking about production and um, a product, right? And you really are a full service company taking somebody from A to B. And then, you know, the next step of that is it's not just enough to produce it. And like you said, and have it sitting in your garage. The hard part is selling it, marketing it, getting it out there. Yeah, it is. And in my early days, when I didn't, I, I guess I just didn't know any better. People would ask me to make stuff and we would. Now I, I, I won't, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's very stressful in the, in those days when, when a product's not, not working out and into, you know, sit there and be like, you know, well, I didn't really, you know, I didn't get it to begin with. That's a terrible answer. Like I have to really feel, feel there's something there, you know, right. it's especially since my model now is, is, is clear straight to, you know, getting them established as a company and helping to build companies and not just, you know, build something for people. Right, right. You're not a one-off. You want to help build a company. You don't want to help build just one toy. So let's talk about presentation because I think a really good part of building a good toy is the presentation. I've been learning more and more how critical packaging is and how critical presentation is of a toy and an invention, right? So mm-hmm. what are some packaging best practices that you could share? Well, there's a ton of those. My degree is actually in package design. So, and then, <laughs> and design Okay, well, was, we don't have all day. So <laughs> just pick. <laughs> and design Edge was birthed as a package design company. That's how my parents started the company back in 1990, 1987. So, oh, really? So you focused on packaging originally? We still do a ton of packaging. And, and yeah. we nominated, we get 
last year we were nominated for for taggy on, on package design the year before that taggy and toady for stuff that we did packaging on what are those two just so that we haven't uh, defined it's like, it's like the grammys and the academy awards of of uh of of the toy industry so what does it stand for toady is toy of the year and taggy is ta- toy and game inventor of the year oh wow congratulations that's awesome thank you but um so pick your pop top five or ten packaging tips and tricks for planogram. us. Planogram. I'm just knowing the planogram, knowing what size things are supposed to be is a major thing. Um, making sure the value to scale is correct is another essential thing. Wait, uh, let's not go too far. So planogram is where you have a mock-up of what it's going to look like in the store and each of the units on the shelf or displayed, right? It's yeah, like, it's like a, a dummy store and then everything's very modular. Okay. So basically to make to simplify it, because it gets a little more complicated than this. Of course. A retailer has their, their shelves laid out, and then they pick what's going to go into that shelf all in the planogram. And they really try to get things into a size to which if something's failing, they can pull something out and replace it without having to reorganize the entire shelf and or store. Okay. And so the next one you talked about was value to scale. That's a new term. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's not making your package too big or too small, really. And just making sure that For the, the price, the perceived value is is there when you look at it. Right. So if it's expensive, it needs to look big. And if it's not expensive, it needs to be smaller. Is that oversimplifying? Um. Yes and no. I mean that that would have been that would have been the correct answer, you know, 10 15 years ago, but obviously we've been everyone's been trying really hard to lower the footprint of packaging for Oh, you know, for yeah, sustainability. Yes, yes. So it also comes down to materials and uh, you know, types of printing and and, and there's a, there's a lot of other factors, but right. but if size is important, if you if you have a yes. Can I quote you on that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if you if you have a if you have a package on shelf that's uh you know 10 inches sitting next to a box is 20 inches and they're the same price and they're in the same category um consumers are going generally going to buy the the, the larger one okay okay yeah so um that was two and i interrupted you keep going any more you want to do three more <laughs> I mean, we can go forever on this. I don't think I could. I would be able to stop. Um, one biggest mistake I see um, is, you know, not hiring the proper type of designer. So, a lot of people get what I refer to as friends that draw, or <laughs> somebody they know who does a website to do their packaging, or somebody who's you know used to do magazine layout or does signs. They're not the same art. They're not the same discipline. Far too often when I can tell that one of those people do it because they'll do a beautiful box that's completely monochromatic, therefore camouflage. <laughs> right. Right. And, you, know, I, you know, I see that very, very often. It's, it's a pet peeve of mine, which is why I get very excited when I see the new green and green on jello. Like, wow, <laughs> it stands out. <laughs> you know. uh, I love green jello. <laughs> also understanding, you know, just the, the the color palette at retail and also where the trends are. Mm. Yeah, that's one thing. If there's any bit of secret sauce to Design Edge, which you know, uh, it's I'm very fortunate that we work with such a large breadth of toy companies and novelty companies and gift companies 
that we're working with them in real time. So we see the trends as they are developing and are able to execute that across many platforms, opposed to usually somebody that's in-house has to wait to see stuff that comes out and then go, oh, I saw this at retail. I like this. Mm. We be doing this. So we can be oftentimes we're a full year ahead, uh, which is, you know, exciting because I, I I love to see like you know when when we come out with something and then all of a sudden you know the following year everyone's followed suit on it yeah. right right that's really cool hello friends I want to take a quick second and thank you for listening and I wanted to tell you about a special new book yep that's right the artist appeals is now an ebook how cool is that it took a really long time to put together but we've saved you all the work and all the effort so if you want to get everything you need all in one place so you can focus on doing what you love most creating then get your copy of the artist appeals how to make money as an artist in seven steps instantly Plus, for a limited time, you'll get three free bonuses. That's right, you get the whole ebook, which has over 200 color pictures and is gorgeously laid out and easy to read and peruse. Plus, you'll also get the Artist Appeals Workbook, which has over 80 pages of checklists and worksheets so that you can keep all your business documents and information all in one spot. And you'll get the Artist Appeals one-page planner, brings it all together in one place, fill it out, put it on your wall as a gentle reminder of where you're going. And then you'll also get the Artist Appeals online course with over 55 more lessons, and I'm adding more all the time. So you get all this for 90% off or just the price of one book. You can get your copy of the Artist Appeals plus three free bonuses at howtomakemoneyasanartist.com. Go to howtomakemoneyasanartist.com, no spaces, now to get your copy today. So thinking of presentation and trends, if you have an idea and you want to get the basics in place, what are the essential things you need to have in place to present your new toy design, either at a conference or to, um, to the market? Like, What are just some of the basics that you need to look towards having in place? Well, there are different benchmarks depending on what phase you're looking to present at. So like a conference or like a trade show depends mm-hmm. on the trade show. So certain trade shows are presenting to her. So like in two, three weeks, you have the Los Angeles toy show. And then uh, immediately after is the Dallas fall preview. Both of them are preview shows. So we can get away with dummy prototypes, uh, you know, things that look either you know, look great, but don't really function or have a perfect function and like a, an amazing rendering to show how it's going to come. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some preliminary packaging that gets the point across, but isn't, but is identified as not being final, you know, but just there to get a reading from retail. Interesting. So there's actually conferences that are preview conferences. Yes. But those are closed door. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're invite only. So it's, it's, uh, but that's where ultimately when when you're if you're starting a toy company, I mean that you want to work your way up to the phase where you're 
it makes sense to be attending those. But you just yeah. can't show up at that. Like, like if you think of like Astra, the American Specialty Toy Retail Association, you can sign up to Astra and get a booth and sit down and potentially get orders just by sitting there as long as, you know, but mm-hmm. that you're not good. That's not going to happen at, at the preview shows because it, it's reps and buyers have appointments. It's appointment only. Mm-hmm. Well, I know Astra has a new vendor section or a new, uh, a newbie section, mm-hmm. if you will. So that's where you and I met. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's it's a great section. And I love that Astra gets behind that because that's, you know, specialty toy is, the perfect place for any startup company to to launch you know if you can win the hearts of the specialty the mom and pops throughout the, the u.s you can you can make a living a great living for the rest of your life without ever once selling to a target or a walmart so let's define specialty toy market sure well specialty is is the mom and pops the small retail chains the independent shops sprinkled all over the nation you know i'm sure you know every town's got you know their local toy guy who's you know, maybe been there forever, or maybe it's some new pop-up, but very trendy place in Brooklyn. But again, it's, you know, it's only 500 square feet, but it's curated amazingly. You know, yeah. a lot of specialty are very good at curating, you know, uh, an in-store experience. Like, you know, they, they're, mm. and they're also going to talk to their consumer. Their consumer is going to walk in the door. They're going to ask them how they're doing today. And I guess they do that at Walmart too, but that's not quite what I mean. <laughs> no. And they can't help you find anything either. Right. I know one of the demo stuff-, stuff too, and they'll show you stuff. That's, that's a really big part of what's so great about specialties. I guess specialty does special things. They do. I know there's one in our region, the learning source that I have my stuff in and they specialize in educational toys mm-hmm. and they also cater to the teacher market and the homeschool market. So they have teacher supplies for the classroom um, as well as homeschool curriculum type of things. Mm-hmm. So it's a really great experience. And these things are, you know, these specialty toy stores are becoming more and more rare. So when you do find them, they're just so much fun. Oh, yeah, they're great. They're, they really are. Well, Mass, because you wanted the both versions, is your your targets and your Walmarts of the world. It's they're they're dealing with a much broader a broader appeal. But I would also say that they are they're selling. I guess the the comparison they're selling pop music. You know, yeah. these are these are toys that you're going to see everywhere for six months or a year, and then mm-hmm. you're likely not going to see them again. You know. Yeah. With yeah. the exception of the classic staples, but even those staples get rebranded and rebranded and rebranded. Like last year, for instance, we for Walmart we redid Monopoly to be Spider Man in the uh, Spider Man Monopoly. So <laughs> Spider Man uh, in the Multiverse yes, Monopoly. That's exactly what we did, and uh, it's Walmart exclusive. So oh, I didn't know. I'm gonna have to go look for that one. My kids love the Multiverse. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had a lot of fun with that one. It's it's quite a. It was quite a exciting piece to work on because it was one of the first times actually where we were told to do all the illustrations ourselves and we weren't supplied by Marvel, which I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So very good. Okay. So we've got conferences What and we've got specialty stores. And then we talked a little bit about agents, but what about sales reps and sales groups? Those are very interesting new um job titles that I've discovered along my adventure in inventing iConnect Crafts. What can you tell us a little bit about sales reps and sales groups and approaching them? What are they? How do you approach them? Well, 
They are the liaison between the manufacturer, which would be you in the case, and the retailer. So they are the gatekeeper. They are going to their their job is to curate uh, a lot of products to get in front of the buyer for the buyer then to make decisions. Sales reps and, and agents and whatever we want to call them, they're they are essential to the toy industry, and they are not always the easiest to get in front of especially if you're a startup, many of them will tell you that they want to see you in, you know, 300 stores on your own before they'll even talk to you. Mm. Um, there's a lot of headaches for them, which I understand that go along with, with new co's, you know, new companies generally don't always have their pricing in an order or they made mistakes. Like we just said, their planogram sizing was off or, you know, they, and it just, they're, they're, they're not in it to mentor you. They're, they're, they're there to find a product that they know is going to sell, which back to what I was saying before is part of the, what, what we do is we make sure from day one that everything's set up so that when I bring in reps, they, there's all that's taken care of. There's no, and they don't have to worry about that. All right. Educate E for educate E for educate. Um, What are some of the, key measurements like in marketing we use the term KPIs key performance indicators but how do you look at what are some of the key performance indicators that you see that make something potentially successful well as we go through each phase if everything's starting to fall fall into place i mean that, that, that's that's really your indicator you know, okay. the design comes out strong is always a great thing. The, the, the packaging is where it's supposed to be. And and by that, I don't just mean that the person who's, you know, come up with the toy or, or paying the bills thinks it looks great, but, you know, it actually does and executes and gets the message across very clearly on shelf. And then, the, you know, the sales reps, so I can get them on board. That's a great indicator because, you know, They'll have no problem telling me, you know, behind closed doors that it's, you know, that it's shit or that they're, <laughs> they're not interested or, you know, like, you know, Matt, come back to me when you got something, you know, because we bust each other's chops too, you know, we're, we're on friendly levels. So, um, I mean, those are your, your your biggest indicators, but, you know, and if they can get it to the next stage to so the buyer and the buyer's giving it time and the buyer wants you to send in samples, you know, obviously that's your next big indicator. So it, it's a process. And I think that process ex exists to sort of, best mitigate success at retail. Right, right. You know, that, that's the the risk you run a little bit with just making something and throwing it up on Amazon because you've removed all those steps and you've, you've arbitrarily done your design and your engineering and your manufacturing and, you know, stand a chance of, 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 of failing horribly. Right. Speaking of mistakes and failing, let's talk about hazard warnings and testing, because I think this is something that, you know, when I was first designing my stuff, I was like, oh, what are those <laughs> hazard warnings, choke hazard warnings? Oops. You mean I need those? You know, so <laughs> uh, you have some experience there. What can you tell us about testing toys and testing requirements? And how well, do you go about that? Because that's another component, right? Sure. Well, the toy industry is heavily regulated. Regulated. What's the word? Regulated. 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 <laughs> I like your word better, though. Regulated. That's my regulated. New York accent was coming out. Yours, regulated. 
regulate um, yourself, yo. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there, there are that we have to meet safety safety requirements on all, on all levels. So you know that that's things have to you know go through a choking tube, and you know lanyards can only be of a certain length, and there's only certain materials that are permitted, and you know if if there's if there's ability to choke, we need choking warnings on items. If there's, you know, if something's flammable, we need to be able to indicate that it's flammable. Um, you know, there's so many different regulations that that it's important to be paid attention to. Now, how does that happen? Well, it's very tricky because the U.S. is a sovereign nation, which means that every state has its own regula- its own set of rules. Oh, right? really? So every state has its own. Um... Hazard warning requirements, Not testing requirements, but, but they're but they're you basically test to the highest requirements for all. Okay, is that California? For the <laughs> most part, Oregon's a very close second. Portland, oh, really? It, <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, that's but that's because most Californians are moving to Oregon, right? Uh, <laughs> Didn't know there mass yeah, migration. Well, <laughs> yeah, a lot of people live in California. I love California though. Uh, so I went I, to grad school there. Beautiful state, yeah, particularly yeah. like the northern part. Personally, yeah. Oh yeah, Northern California is fantastic, uh, and I like. But I like Southern California as well. I'll be there. I'll be there in two weeks for a whole week. Nice. Uh, where was I going? So yes. Yeah, so we we employ third party testing labs that are like behemoth companies that uh, that will test the products and a make sure that they are compliant and mm-hmm. b make sure that all our warnings are compliant. Great. Yeah, that was something I ran into at Astra that I hadn't seen before as I was approached by several testing people, individuals came and said, hey, has this been tested? Do you need me? So there's individuals too, right? Um, well, I'd imagine those individuals are just working for a much larger company. I don't believe there are individual testing labs. I don't think the, the oh. arts and targets of the world would accept their their certifications. There's giant testing lab companies like you know we employ a company like uh, like SGS is a great example. I mean they're worldwide. Mm-hmm. You're going to want your 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 testing company to be about as legit as it possibly as it comes. That's good advice. I mean, that's good advice. I literally was approached by some individuals that had smaller companies. I do believe so. Going with a bigger company is great advice. And those smaller companies might be good for you. It depends on what you need it for. So let me rephrase that because I don't want to be shitting on anyone's testing company, right? <laughs> I, I to, so. And, and it's, they can test your product and they might be able to tell you if you're not compliant, which is important. Yeah. Right. So that there is a good service there. But when we, but if we're going to ship to Walmart or Barnes and Noble or Target or any major retailer, I'm going to want to make sure that we're using a testing lab that is you know, very difficult to argue, you know, about the, right. your insurance, about their company, validity, your insurance company is going to make sure that you're using, you know, uh, uh, a very reputable um, testing company. And oftentimes, actually pretty much all the time, retailers are going to tell you that you have these specific uh, testing labs. It's not, it's not really up to you. Oh, Okay. Very cool. So what organizations are essential to be a part of if you want to start a toy business and start 
getting out there? What are the the first ones, the best ones that you would recommend to somebody just starting up? I mean, just starting up. I mean, the the, the I mean, the two primary ones are you know the Toy Association, uh, which I sit on the board there. I sit on the Creative Factor, which is the education section of it. So we we try to educate inventors and startups, which. I guess yeah. what I'm doing right now. And as uh-huh. well as uh, People of Play, formerly known as ShyTech, which I also sit on their advisory board, which is a fantastic event that happens every every November to which, you know, companies, uh, startups get to get mentored by by all executives from all walks of the toy industry. Oh, fantastic. Where's that going to be? Uh, Chicago. Chicago. I want to go. Yeah, I mean, it's... Chicago in November, you know, bring your bring your shorts and uh and just come and chill out. Very cool. Chicago is a beautiful town. Love Chicago. I've been yeah. this will be I actually I can always figure out what year, how many years I've been going to Chi Tag because well, the first one I ever went to, I took my son, who was at that time like two and a half months old. <laughs> and, and he will be 15 in two weeks. Oh, congratulations. That's 15 years of going to Shytech and, and and a cool 15-year-old son. And now now people of play. Yes. Now people we rebranded it a couple of years ago. So I did their original logo, which is the Shytech logo. And then I redid their logo to be people of play. And there, there's there's a there's a great study in, in in branding. So I had done the original logo and then the, the people in charge wanted to try somebody else to do some new logos and and they did and they weren't bad logos but then i came mm-hmm. back out and i told them I'm like i think you're making a big mistake because you're you're changing your name which is difficult as is mm-hmm. and you're changing your branding at the same time which without a massive budget you're going to get everyone confused so i convinced them to use the same aesthetic with the new name and it completely worked it it, it was a pretty pretty seamless transition fantastic so i've got a lot, like- of, a lot of kudos on that for, you know and it was uh and yeah and i'm i'm happy that we did we stuck to that kudos to you <laughs> i like the name people of play i think it's more indicative of what it is you do um particularly for somebody that's just coming in from the outside world and wondering what do you do yeah it's a great name you know it, it took the the board a long time to to get to it and i'm, and I'm glad they didn't impress the abbreviation you know pop People of play. It's fun. It's poppy. Yes. It pops. <laughs> uh, it pops. So um getting bigger, amplifying. How do you uh sell more in the toy industry? What is the best route you would advise for people looking to scale their toy business? Stay within the same category. Um, and innovate within that within that area and become established as a vendor that will fill certain slots for certain retailers. So if you're a craft company, don't make your next item a game. Mm. You know, the you your your relationship with the buyers was going to grow your company. So when the sales reps walk in with your your line and they see, you know, and they're able to walk in, they're going to meet with buyers that are in very specific categories. So it's not a toy buyer. It's the game buyer. It's the craft and activities buyer. It's the stationary buyer. It's the, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Each one of those categories has its own buyer. And if you just walk in with one item and the buyer goes, not for me, well, you're dead right there. 
if you're walking with five items, the, the buyer is going to give you more consideration. It might pick, might pick just one, but they might pick, they might pick all of them. Mm-hmm. But that being said, the buyer is going to get to know you and they're going to come to rely on you and they're going to help their, and as your items are successful and they know that you've got more behind it, they're going to make sure to make space for you. Right. How do you get connected with buyers? It's, it's all the things we're talking about. You, you've got to do, you've got to do all those yeah. steps right and get in front of them. You're not going to start, you're not going to get a relationship with a buyer, you know, three days after you come up with your idea. Right. It's going to take you, you know, 12 to 18 months to even get in front of a buyer. And you're going to have one meeting with that buyer and probably five years before four years before you can really establish a relationship to which the buyer is going to even want to, you know, make you consider or consider you rather as, as a vendor that's re- reliable and consistent. Going back to the whole staying within your category and having a product line, how many products should a company have or should there be within a category? <laughs> well, they still, again, they should be within a category, but they should not be, they should not be variations of the same thing. So that's, that's really, that's just, that's just a couple of skews of the same item. You know, that that's not quite the same as having, um, multiple lines. So you eventually you're going to work your way up to have, uh, you know, two or three lines because it's very difficult to be a one item company. Um, a, the reps don't really want to carry you because the retailers don't want to do all the paperwork and then fill you out as a vendor, have that one item fail. And now they're right back to, to the drawing board, have to fill that space again. They're looking mm-hmm. for companies that, that can have great success and, and if there's a bomb or a failure, can you know can absorb it and maybe re replug that hole, you know. Great. Mm. If you look at the the WalMarts of the world, you know they from you know they won't take single item companies because if it fails, they're putting you out of business. That's really interesting. It's it's a different perspective on Walmart. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Going back for just a second to packaging and putting things on the shelf and having space, is it important for a toy company to create a point of purchase display to have a unit that maybe your line of products comes in? Do you know what I'm saying? Especially especially at specialty a point of purchase display is could could make or break your item because it's it it's it's marketing it's there the, there's an entire assortment can come into there they don't have to buy you know you know multiple you know case packs it can just they can get you know five or six versions of something into one pdq and and that's PDQ? That. pretty darn quick <laughs> <laughs> You know, I've heard this in even other genres. Um, one of the designers of a greeting card company that I spoke with, I thought it was fascinating that she sells the spinners preloaded with her designs. And that's how they do it. You buy the whole spinner with the whole line of cards and they have a fuller size one or they have the table size one, mm-hmm. but that's what you get. You get a spinner preloaded with her designs of her cards. And um, so it's real easy for the store to just plunk. There you go. Absolutely. It's a great, it's a great way to open doors, but to the point before you're going to have to have multiple SKUs. You can't have 
a display filled with, you know, 24 of the same exact item. Right. Let's talk skew for just a second, because that's a term that maybe somebody who's really new wouldn't be familiar with. It's SKU. What's it stand for? Stock keeping unit. Stock keeping unit. Thank you. Stock keeping unit. So so if you have a line, each item gets a different skewed number. But if it's, you know, 10 of the same thing, or let's say it's a, you know, I have an orange Sharpie in my hand right now for those who are listening on audio. But then this might have a different skew number than the black Sharpie, even though they're both Sharpies and they're both markers. But they need to be able to track how many orange they sold versus how many blacks they sold. Right. So it's a way to identify the product. Mm -hmm. Another one that I think is um, interesting that you need to know is UPC codes. Mm -hmm. Um, You want to talk about that for a sec? Well, the barcode, the UPC code is is the digital uh, system to which the computer scans and reads it. They're all unique identifiers. So, yes, you absolutely need one. And I would advise always generate a new one. We've had nightmares in the past where people bought, uh, you know, used ones. And then, the, you know, you're scanning your, 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 your baby doll and it, and it comes up as an adult diaper. Well, you know, it's interesting. I did see that online is there are a lot of third-party companies that will try and sell you SKUs, which is not a good thing. You need to go direct to the source. So yeah. what's the source for UPC codes? There are plenty of UPC generating companies and there are apps that will do it as well. It's it, there there I are bl- there are quite a few options when it comes to that. Yeah. I believe it's GS1 is the the primary, is it not? GS1. Yeah, dot- that, that's that's what we use, you know, but you know, fortunately for me, I have somebody here who does that. So I don't, uh, I don't spend much of my time generating UPCs at this point. <laughs> right, of course not. But I think it's important to know because some places won't take you without a UPC code, right? I think you know, it's essential at this point in time. It's essential. The world is digital. That's that's yeah. just the way that it is. No, no one's, you know. No one's just looking at the price tag in the corner and punching it into their register anymore. It's everything's scanned. <laughs> I've made that mistake. I didn't know about UPC codes when I first started out. So I've made that mistake, been there, done that. And you want to incorporate that into your packaging design because if you have to add it afterwards as a sticker, it sucks. Trust yes, me. Yes, that, that can become quite costly and annoying. Yes. Really annoying. Licensing and contract terms coming, but let's hit on rep groups real quick because this is another facet of the industry that I didn't know about. And when I learned about rep groups, I was like, oh, what are these? And what are these magazines like the Good Toy Company? So what are these um, collectives? Um, I guess they're two different things, rep groups and collectives yeah, they are, are they different. Are different so they're literally thousands of of sales reps that across the nation and they have you know some are part of giant organizations and some are part of small and some are part of conglomerates and each one of these represents a territory and each one of them has its own group of retailers to which it represents so you can get a rep group that only does walmart but you can also get a rep group that does all of new england mm-hmm. yeah. And they are the ones, back to what we were saying before, sort of the gatekeepers to these to the retailers. So, yes, reps are extremely important. And, you know, finding the right rep or rep groups or sales manager to manage your reps is uh, essential to being able to open up the doors to retail. 
and have success. Right. Now you're I, also buying groups. Like the right. Good, good game, the good toy group, the good games group. Jeez, I forget. I, it's the good toy group, I believe. Good toy group, where it's more of a, it, it's a, a, a communal buy to which they'll sort of curate between themselves. These are the buyers, not the reps. We'll get together and say, we walked Astra and we all agree that these 10 items are what we all want in our stores. And then they'll use that power to negotiate uh, purchasing uh, with those with those guys, whatever retailers are. It's fascinating. I'd never heard of it before. It reminds me a little bit of Pennsylvania's liquor laws. Sorry, yeah. maybe that's an inside joke. But yeah, no, um, I still laugh because it's liquor laws. I'm like, and when I think liquor laws, I'm like, oh, does that mean I'm getting arrested? Well, Pennsylvania, you can't buy liquor in a beer store. They are separate. The liquor stores are state controlled. So they purchase liquor from wine and liquor from the wineries or from the distilleries in bulk. And then they distribute them to the liquor stores in pennsylvania so it it's a little similar to the toy groups in that you know it's a group of stores right this group of buyers and they almost they almost make like a catalog right yeah they do that's pretty much that's 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 pretty true the rest and then like i said people pick through and they use the use as a buying power situation interesting very interesting. All right, let's talk licensing and contract terms okay. because I think this scares people so much. You know, it's it's legalese and it just looks like gibberish sometimes. So, what are some of the most important terms or contracts that you need to have in place? Contracts or the terms within the contracts? Do you mean the terms of a contract or term like word terms that are in a contract? Because there there are terms is a term. And <laughs> well, let's start with what are some of the standard contracts you see within the toy industry? Well, if, if we're talking about licensing, so if you're an inventor, right, and you want to license your product to a toy company, um, you know the standard royalty rate is five percent. Usually, advances generated based on what a company would predict to be their first year's order, about twenty percent of that order. And, and a minimum guarantees can vary depends on the type of com, com, depends on the type of company that you're licensing to. Um, I mean, there's, there's I mean, there's so much to go through. I mean, there's a lot there's a lot to be said about the, the size of a company to which you license an invention to. Right. You know, it's people also have to calculate. You know, is it worth it? Far too often, I find people like, oh, I licensed a game. I'm super excited. I'm like, you licensed a game to a company that's going to make 5,000 pieces and you have a 5% of net gross, what are you going to do with your 600 bucks? Like, you know, it's like, it's, it's not really worth it. You might've been better off just doing it yourself, but licensing does become a big deal when you're dealing with the, the, the spin masters, Mattels and Hasbro's of the world where, you know, they're multi, multi-billion dollar corporations who, who are going to get placement in the largest retailers all over the planet. You know, mm-hmm. and you potentially, you know, are going to make a few hundred thousand and maybe even, you know, a million bucks if, you, if it's if the product. Wow. Doesn't. So licensing is where you allow somebody else to produce, manufacture and distribute your idea or your design, right? Right. That's probably where I should have started. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I used to be a teacher. What can I say? I'm I I excel at uh summarizing things into um simplifying things. That's yes, my uh, that was my job for years is to simplify which, it to get it there. Yes, but you're hundred correct, hundred percent correct. So an inventor comes up with an idea. They don't have the wherewithal, or nor do they want to manufacture. Maybe they they just want this as you know ancillary income, and they're just like, I'd like to sell this to somebody else to do. They would then approach a toy company and or an agent and have them show the item around and if the strike a deal to which they would make a, a royalty. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. And you mentioned a couple that I've heard before, a minimum royalty guarantee, which is, you know, a minimum amount of money that they're promising you they're going to make for you. Right. Yes. And then royalties, what everybody wants to know, which is the, you know, percentage of what you're going to get of the sale price. Right. Um, Other things that are really important to know or look at in a contract well de- yes pay attention to the definition of net gross within your contract and mm. make sure it's sort of buttoned up and and makes sense and it's clear because if it's left very vague then they can someone can put grandma on the books for five million dollars a year and there goes all your profit so can you define net gross for us well i mean net gross is the the amount of, of profit minus the whatever um, expenses, expenses, discounts, and allowances, and whatnot. So you have to define, you know, what's a permittable discount or allowance, or up to what percentage of the total will you allow that to be? Okay, good advice. Really good advice. So that's normally in the contract, and you have got to define it. And if it's not there, you want to, right? Yes, yes. I mean, it's in it's any contract. I supply definitely has it. I don't. It's not always. You know, a shady company might not have that in there at all you know, because it, it allows them to be a little more, let's say, liberal with the accounting. Mm. Yeah, they make more profit. They can keep more to themselves that way. Mm-hmm. So fantastic advice. Thank you. Um, have you ever been a take advantage of or messed up a contract? Is there any, you know, learn from my experience moment you'd love to share I've got I've, plenty I've, of. I've, I've had some some instances where I was perturbed. Um, <laughs> Any you want to share? Anything to look at? Any lessons learned? Uh yeah, you know, pay attention to what they're making and and and, and look at your royalty reports because they it might not always it might they might not always correlate. Like there was an item I had years ago with a very big toy company that they had purchased. They had bought the company I had originally licensed it to. And okay. that ran for like 15 years. But they were saying about eight years in, uh, the royalty checks started coming in and I'm, they became like ridiculously low. 300 bucks, 400 bucks. And I was like, you know, I was making you know thousands and thousands previously. And I was like, okay, well, I guess the life cycle is over because that happens. Okay. The life cycle of a toy. Yeah. Because it's, Toys are fashion, so they'll be very popular for a little while, and then they sort of die out, and then they sort of, you know, dissipate, and, you know, maybe you okay. bring it back 10 years later. You know, some fashions do come back, just like some toys do come back. <laughs> Every 20 years, my grandma would say. Yeah. Which, Keep yeah, your clothes yeah. for 20 years, they'll come back in style. Yes, and there's certainly truth to that, especially in toys. Um, 
But then I had gone over to, to Nuremberg, Germany for the for the European toy show. And I walk into the to the hall and I just see a giant version of my toy, like over the over a booth. And I walk down to the booth and there's like, I don't know, 40, 50 different versions of the item. And I'm like, okay. What? This doesn't make sense. So I kind of got a little pissy and I made some phone calls with you know a lot of like you know, WTS to the, you know, product managers and people on either. So I had to go in and audit. And then it ended up being that they were just paying me on one skew, one color of one skew instead of the entire, entire line. So I had Wow. To, yes. Now this was a, a license that transferred from another company. So you had licensed the work to a company and then that company that got bought by a yes. bigger company and the license actually transferred? Yes. And is that something that has to be negotiated up front in the original contract, or is that something that um, gets negotiated during the purchase of the company? Well, no. It's usually if they're getting purchased, it's going to go. It's going to go with it, assuming that all the points of the contract are still met. Okay. Okay. Well, a big mistake I find is a lot of inventors try to do this, you know, BS to which they, you know, the, the terms are three years and then it's renegotiable. Like, why would anyone sign? An agreement where it can be renegotiated in three years, especially a toy company that's about to put, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars into advertising, blow something up and then give the inventor a chance to renegotiate at the height of his success. You name one inventor that's going to be like, hey, it's fine. Pay me less. They're always going to be like, you know, it's a big success. I want a bigger chunk. Right. So I've seen a lot of deals get killed like that, you know, or, or inventors who just ask for too much or. Also, don't realize that negotiating, isn't it? It doesn't have to be guns drawn. A lot of these people feel like, you know, like, you know, I'm going to go in there and they're going to, you know, play like a mean game of poker and they're going to, you know, going to beat some people over the head. I found just, you know, being friendly and just talking it through uh, is works just as well. In fact, better. You know, I've had deals killed because the inventor just kept, you know, sometimes because I also, you know, we'll, I represent inventors here and there. I've had deals killed. Because the inventor just keeps pushing me and saying, well, nope, just try it. Let's see what happens. And I'm always like, you can't pull that card over and over again because they're going to walk away. And every right. inventor thinks that they've got gold and that they're going to, that they're out of the chances of the world. But there's always something behind it. And any company is going to be like, you know what? You're just too difficult. I'm going to move on. And then they always act shocked when the, when the item gets dropped. Like they can't mm. believe because, but they were playing a game. And these guys, right. you know, it's, it's not going to, who wants that? Right. So don't play games. And it's interesting that you said there's not normally a term um, of years in licensing contracts for toys. It's more. Well, there are there are terms, but those terms are, there's benchmarks to those terms. And if the terms are generally hit, things renew. Oh, what I see. Some, what some inventors would want to do, though, is just have a flat out three-year term and then have the ability to renegotiate at that three-year point okay that, that, that never works no, so no it's one. more standard to have three years with option to renew and then the contract just is the same yes yes i see very good very good all right and finally s for success all right oh yeah oh this is a good one i want to know this Profit margins that was a term that is a business term that i don't think a lot of people unless they've gone to business school, maybe, or 
are in the trenches maybe understand. So how do you calculate profit margins? And, you know, can you tell us a little bit about that? Can you define it and tell us how you calculate it? Sure. Well, the profit margin is, you know, your actual profit, which you walk away, your net at the end of the, at the, end of the day, right? That's the, mm-hmm. the check that you cash and you can go buy some groceries with, right? So what is that? So let's use that formula we were using before when I was talking about Keystone. So which, you know, you buy something for that, you buy it from the factory for five, you wholesale it at 10 and the retailer puts it out at 20. So your margin is the $5 between the five and 10. But you have expenses, you have shipping, you have your design, you have whatever other ancillaries we can imagine, right? The sort of things that would have to be defined in that contract to which we say, what is net gross? You know, these right. are the things that are in there. And in general, if you're walking away with a 30% margin out of that, you're doing well. Excellent. 30% is a good margin. Okay. Um. How has the toy market evolved and where do you think it's going in the future? I love where the toy market has gone in my lifetime. Cause when I was a kid, um, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd read about or see on TV in, in Japan, adults collecting toys and reading comic books and Americans would be like, they're so weird <laughs> forward to now adults are reading comic books and collecting toys. And then Marvel movies are the biggest thing. And then on in, in, in cinema, um, toys have expanded to be respectable beyond the boundaries of just being a child. Yeah. You know, if you look at the, the growth of the game market alone and the craft and activity markets to which, you know, it, it, there's, it, it, it keeps expanding, expanding. And that, and that, you know, that's the value of play. And, and it shouldn't stop when you turn 13. If you, you're always, you can always expand your mind by always using your imagination and toys allow that. Yeah, I definitely, you have a really good valid point. It's, you know, when I was growing up, adults that played with toys were weird. And now I know lots of people that collect toys. I I collect Legos and, you know, other kind of fun stuff. And and there's a whole, you know, lines for adults. Yeah. Adult coloring books, adult Legos. I've got the new Bonsai one. You know, right. they've got a whole floral line of Legos. I'm like, yes, Legos. Well, Funko. Funko isn't just sold to kids. Those Funko action figures are, you know, they're probably selling from 40 to 80 year olds. You know, it's it's they're 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 That's a lot true. of fun. They're yeah, portable. yeah, yeah. Well, very good. Well, thank you so much. This has been a hellishly informative podcast (laughs) (laughs) well thank you for having me on and i'm I'm sure i I know i didn't touch on everything but i hope it's enough for people to absorb and if they have any questions they can always reach out yeah where can people get hold of you where can people with an idea uh hit you up sure well a lot of people look for me on linkedin uh i seem to get a lot of traction on there for whatever reason it's I, I joke with my friends that it's not the coolest social media platform to be on. I'd rather be a TikTok or an Instagram star, but that didn't work out. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not good looking enough. But so oh, I, can you I, dance? I have, a, I have a face for LinkedIn, right? Um, can you dance? Wait, uh, aren't you on a TV show? I am on a, I'm, yes, I just finished filming a TV show. Yes, that is correct. And what's it called? That TV show is called Make 48. It's on PBS. This will be the fifth season, although I'm only uh, I'm only in season five. Uh, but I will be on every episode. 
and with the last two with the last several episodes focusing particularly on design edge and what we do very cool so your company's design edge and they can look you up at designedge.com oh we're designedge.net oh that happened dot before net? my tenure yeah that, that was still in college when my when the, my parents uh, t- got that domain but it hasn't seemed to be a problem if you type design edge into google we 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 we're going to come up first um, but yeah, you can find me at designers.net or you can email me at maddesigns.net or said like find me on LinkedIn. We also, if, if, if you're close enough, smoke signals work for us, you know, <laughs> shoot fine. up a flare. Yeah. Flare gun. Yes. Yes. You know, either I'll get to you or the coast guard. It's one of the other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Matt. Thank you so much for being on the artist appeals. This, as I said, has been really, really informative and a unique one. Toy design. Hey, thanks for joining us in this week's episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please share it. And be sure to follow us on your favorite platform so you never miss out on an episode. All right, I'll see you next week. Later.